Welcome everyone and thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Fraud. I'm the Assistant Program Director for Drisha and I am very happy to have everyone back for the uh, next class in our series of Your Name Shall Be Great, the Abraham Narrative. Uh, we took a break for Thanksgiving, but before that we had been working on chapter 14. We were talking about Lot. We were talking about the relationship between Avram and Sarai, we talked about uh, Avimelech, uh, and we are going to pick up today with the end of chapter 14 and then move into chapter 15. I'm going to pull up a copy of the text uh, on the screen in just a moment so that people can follow along there if it's easier, but also if you have a, a Humash or preferred text that you'd like to use at home, please feel free to use that as well. Um, if folks are able to keep their video on, we always appreciate being able to look around and, and see who's in the room the way that we would if we were in a, a room together for an in-person share. Um, so folks can keep their videos on and also keep themselves muted if they're not uh, chiming in with a question or comment, we always appreciate that. Uh, we do encourage folks to use the chat to have questions or comments throughout the year, and there will be breaks for, for questions with, with Rabbi Silber periodically throughout the year. Um, if folks have any kinds of tech issues coming up throughout this year, feel free to send me a direct message uh, and any other questions, feel free to let me know. Uh, but I'm going to pull up the text in just a moment and then we should be able to get started. Uh, Rabbi Silver, I think we okay, are- Okay, we can just, uh, right, thank you, Michael. Um, all right, just to recall where we are in chapter 14. Chapter 14, describes, begins with the description of a battle between four kings and five kings. Then, uh, interestingly enough, the, the actually heart of the chapter is not about the battle of the four and the five. That's sort of a, a diversion in a sense, but the main point of the chapter, as I understand it, is that the four kings, who don't seem actually to attack the five kings at all, they ignore them. The four, the four kings capture, when they go down to the land of Canaan, they essentially defeat all the powerful peoples in the land of Canaan. Then Avraham, when he hears that after this battle against the people of Canaan, they're, they're going back home and the five kings attack them. It's not really a war. And the four kings simply keep walking, take everything and go home. Among the people they capture is Lot, Avraham's nephew. Avraham hears that his nephew has been taken captive. That's in chapter 14. And he assembles his household and he sets off on a lengthy expedition up north where he feeds these four kings in a sort of a lightning strike. He retrieves all of the people and all of their possessions, and he comes back. So in doing so, what he's actually done is, in a symbolic sense, by defeating the four kings who defeated the powerful peoples of Canaan, he has, in a symbolic sense, possessed the land of Canaan. And that's his mission. His mission is to symbolically possess the land of Canaan, and presumably the symbolic possession paves the way for the actual possession of Canaan sometime in the future. That is the subject of chapter 15. So 15 and 14 are very much tied together. When Avram comes back with all the people and the possessions, he is greeted by two people. The first of whom is introduced as a greeter in chapter 14, verse number 17. That's the king of Sodom. Sodom so he greets Abraham, we're told. Vayetze, um, he goes out to greet him. And he goes out to greet him in a place called Emek Shaveh. Emek is a valley. Shaveh, here they translate in my translation, Shaveh, but 
Shaveh means flat, can also mean even, which is the valley of the king. And then before we hear what he has to say to Abram, another character is introduced, a mysterious character, Malkitzedek, the king of Shalem. He greets Abram. We'll go over that in a, mo- in a moment. But before that, I simply wanted to reflect upon the fact that in chapter 14, among other things, there is a kind of critique of, of, of kingship in general. There are the five kings. There are the four kings who join together Chavru in the beginning of the chapter in a place called Amek Hasidim Uyam HaMelach. And the five and the four join together and in the chapter, as we pointed out, it never mentions anybody with them. It mentions the five against the four, to the extent that the reader, or perhaps the reader who doesn't think about this deeply, presumes that the five had to do with the advantage over the four, the five being more than four. But of course, the four are four gigantic kingdoms, and the five are five nobodies. There can't really be a war between the four and the five, nor is there. Five just walk home, take the people, take the food, and they, they walk. Meanwhile, the king of Sodom, the others all flee to the mountains, the three kings, and the king of Sodom and Amorah, we are told, fall into slime pits. Berot, 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 Chemar. They fall into slime pits. They fall. Actually, in biblical Hebrew, to fall, sometimes the term to fall, at least to fall in war. But in this case, they literally, there was no war, but they literally fall into Beirut Chemar. And the Chemar is interesting, the Chomer, the Chemar is that which is used earlier to build the Tower of Babel. They want to ascend to the heavens. They want to perhaps contest God in the heavens. And the king of Shinar is the first na- person mentioned in chapter 14. But unlike the People of Babel, who have aspirations, fight with God in the heavens. These fall into the pits. There isn't actually a war at all. So they fall into the pits. And what's interesting in the chapter is this critique of kingship is not limited to the five kings, but it's it runs through the chapter because the story of the five kings and the four kings, the focus in the chapter, it begins with five kings. Then in the so-called battle, there are only two kings that the text highlights, the king of Amora and the king of Sodom that fall into the pits. The rest flee to the mountains. They disperse, sort of like Babel, dispersed. But then in the verse we begin with, verse 17, we focus solely on the king of Sodom. As if the king of Sodom is emblematic of the kings in the chapter, we have to remember that where the so-called battle takes place, uh, it's Emek Hasidim. Emek Hasidim probably is a biblical play on Sodom, though it's written with a sin, not a Samach. Huyam HaMelach, the sea of the sea of salt, Melach and Melech, of course, is another play. So the focus seems to be on kingship, five, the four, and the Torah mocks the kings. They care only about themselves, never mentions anybody with them. In contrast to Avraham, when it comes to Avraham, it mentions his disciples, his servants, his people, all kinds of different terms. We'll come to that in a moment. So they are self-centered. And uh, the, the character who stands out in verse 17 is the king of Sodom. He greets him in Emek HaMelech, the valley of the king, which is also Emek Shaveh. And there again, the Torah pokes fun. Because the word Shaveh can mean equal, but the word Shaveh can equally mean flat. So he greets him in a, in a, in a, in a, in a place that is flat, because we are reminded that the previous place the king of Sodom went into were the slime pits, which were not flat, and he ended up falling in the battle, falling into the pit. So say he came out, means not that he came out only to greet him, but he actually came out of the pit. And this time he's careful not to go in a place where he could fall into a pit, but rather, Emek Shaveh, or Emek HaMelech. And the other point of Shaveh, which means equal, he greets Avraham as an equal. But of course, in the story, he's hardly an equal. He started a foolish war, which was a non-war. People all got lost. Their possessions were all lost. And Avraham was interested in saving his nephew Lot, he hears his, lo- his nephew has been captured, 
ends up saving everybody and bringing everybody back. Heshiv, says the Torah. Vayashiv et kovah v'chush, v'gam et lot achiv v'chusho heshiv. V'gam et anashim v'yet ha'am, that's the previous verse, verse 16. So they're not really equals in the story. One is a troublemaker and a nobody. The other is the great hero. But before we have a chance to hear what he says to Abram, we have this other character introduced now in verse number 18. So I want to pick up with Malchit Tzedek, and then we'll move into chapter 15, which of course is the chapter of the covenant between God and Abraham, God and Abraham's descendants. It's one of the central chapters of the Torah, obviously. Malchit Tzedek, mysterious Malchit Tzedek, his name is Malchit Tzedek. Righteous king, that's his name. And in fact, he is a king. He's the king of a place called Sholem, which is wholeness, perfection, perhaps related to Yerushalayim, possibly. But Sholem is a very positive word. He's the king of Sholem. He brings, he greets Abram Hotzi. The king of Sodom is Vayetzemelot Sodom. With Avimelot is Hotzi. He brings out, as he's going to bring things for Avram. He's going to greet Avram after the battle. And not only is he a king, but we are told who Kohen Eloyon. He's also a priest to the high God, whatever God this is. Doesn't seem to be a specific God. God has no name here. We'll see in a moment. But he's a priest. He comes to greet him, we're told, Lechem Vayayin. It's not what we would expect when we study the Torah. We don't expect him to bring Lechem Vayayin. We might expect him to bring Lechem and Mayim. But he brings yayin. He doesn't bring water and bread and water. Like, for example, later in the Torah, the Torah condemns the Moabites and the Ammonites. They didn't greet you with bread and water. That's what you expect to read. But bread and wine is different. Because bread and wine typically carries with it a kind of sacrificial caste. He's a priest. He's greeting Avram not just with provisions, but with provisions that a priest would bring. In the Torah, there are wine libations, and there is, and the sacrifices, meat, are called lechem. Lechem doesn't only mean bread. Korbani lachmi li'ishai. The lechem that is burnt on the, on the altar. It's not, it's not actually bread, but it's that which sustains you. There it's meat. It could be bread, it could be meat. So he comes as a priest. And among other things in the Torah, priests bless. Not only do they bless in the priestly blessing we're familiar with from the book of Bamidbar in the liturgy, but Yitro is a priest who, who blesses Moshe and the people of Israel after, after leaving Egypt, after the battle. Yitro, the priest, comes to bless. He's a, he's a king and a priest. And he blesses Avram. We discussed the double blessing that he gives. Verse 19, Baruch Avram Elohim. Avram is blessed to the El Elyon, to the high God, the creator of heaven and earth. And the next blessing, Uvaruch El Elyon, and blessed is the El Elyon, who has delivered your foes into your hand. So there's a double blessing. The first blessing is Avram, who is, uh, Avram is, uh, is doing God's work. He is blessed to God. He does God's work. And then God is blessed for, for helping Avram do God's work. God to help deliver the enemies into Avram's hand. So the double blessing is the first blessing. And this is actually, the, in my view, the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is that Avram, in this war, has actually 
symbolically possessed the sacred space, which in the book of Breshit is the alternative to Eden. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the true Eden after the expulsion. Gan Eden becomes not the place you go back to. The place you go to is the, is the land of Canaan. And within the land of Canaan, there's also the sacred space within Canaan. Avram has secured it, and in doing so, has fulfilled the creator of heaven and earth. The creator of heaven and earth is the first verse in the Torah. Chapter 1, verse 1, Breshit Elohim And in chapter 2, verse 4, Baram. And then it tells us the story of the Garden of Eden. So the two creation accounts, which are contradictory in a certain sense, but they're not contradictory. They're actually supplementary, complementary. That is to say, God is the creator of all. But within the creation of Shemayim Va'aretz, there's the second story of Toldot Shemayim Va'aretz, a fulfillment of God's creation of Shemayim Va'aretz is in fact the Garden of Eden. But in this scenario, it's the replacement of Eden. So Avram, what you have done is fulfill the plan of the creator. You are blessed because you fulfill the plan of the creator. You're doing God's work and you couldn't do it without God's assistance. So blessed is the God, and then Avram gives Malkitzedek a Maaser. In terms of the Maaser, I had mentioned that he gives him a tithe, he gives him a tenth. In the chapter, of course, there are 10 kings. There are five kings, there are four kings, they're no good. But there's one king who's Malkitzedek, who does Tzedek who serves God. So appropriately, he gets a tenth. That's one significance of the, of the tenth. And by the way, the Torah is saying something, I think, about kingship in general. When you look at leaders, kings, the leaders in the Bible, of course, are kings. If you want to make an estimation, how many of them are good? It's about 10%. I think that's about right. So kingship may be a blessing, but it's also problematic. But one of 10 can be a Malkitzedek, can be a righteous king. Now there's something else about the 10th. I had another thought about the 10th, which is the following thought. Avram, in contrast to the five kings and the four kings, when he hears that his <coughs> nephew has been captured, so Avram, we are told, does the following thing. This is chapter 14, he's informed in Verse number 13, what has happened? Avram dwells, we are told, in the tents of Eonei Mamre, together with Oner Eshkolu Mamre. These are Avram's confederates, Bale Brit Avram. So he dwells with them. They're his allies, his confederates. They are Amorites and Mori, but they're his confederates. When Avram hears that his brother, literally, his relative, has been captured, so we're told the following. Vayarek et chanichav, this is in verse number 14. Vayarek et chanichav, he musters his chanichim, his retainers, his disciples. That's one group, chanichim. Then we're told, yuridei beito, those that were born in his house. So that's two. Then later on, in the next verse, verse number 15, he goes and fights. 
So there is Huva Avodav is two more himself and his Avodim is four. Then later on, uh, the king of Sodom will, will want to make a deal with Abraham at the end of chapter 14. And Abraham says to the king of Sodom, I'm not taking anything from you. We'll discuss that in a moment. But the last verse of the chapter, Bill or die, no, not me. Me for me, nothing. Rakasher Ochu Hanarim, the Narim should get the young men. That's two more, that's six now. Then he adds, should take their portion. That's seven, eight, nine. I believe, by the way, that what Rashi says here is actually the, the best interpretation. That did not go with, 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 with Abraham. They stayed back. They, they, those are the people Abraham lives with. But nonetheless, they should take their portion because even though they stayed back, they stayed back. But those are the people that I actually dwell with. So they perform a function in, in this war, in the war. They are the place to which I can return when, when necessary. So if this be the case, and why do I, why does Rashi say this? Rashi says this because what Rashi noticed was something very interesting. And that is in the story in the book of Shmuel, when David goes to Tziklag, he comes to Tziklag, he discovers that all the women and all the children and all the possessions, the food, have been taken by somebody. We know that it's Amalek, actually. And David questions, should he go? And the people are angry. People want to kill David, actually, his own men. And David chases after them. 400 of his men go with him, 200 stay behind. It's chapter 30 of Shmuel Aleph. And David has a great victory. He finds out where they are. He retrieves everything, retrieves the spoils, retrieves the people. And the 400 who went with him say, we shouldn't give any of the spoils to those fellows that stayed behind, the 200 who stayed behind. They didn't fight with us, giving them their wives and children and goodbye. The other says, no, no, we can't do that. It's a rule. Those who go into the war, the chalik of those that go into the war, and the chalik who stay behind, yachdav yachloku, should divide it equally together. The word chalik appears there three times. And in the story there is very much connected to the story here of Abraham, similar story. That's a different discussion, the significance of that in the book of Shmuel, it's very interesting. But the point is that Rashi reads the story here in light of the story there. The truth is I thought of this myself many years ago and I found it in Rashi. But I think it's the best interpretation. It's actually based, what Avram is saying is not true. I, for me, I take nothing. The others who fought with me, my chelok I'm not taking, but the chelok of the three honor And remember, when Avram fights against the four kings, it says, So and are connected. So yes, there are those who went to battle: the Narim, the Anoshim, Avram himself, Avodav, Chalichav, Yehuda Beito. They're in battle. But also, but my point here is, among other things, that there are nine different people or groups that are mentioned. Malkitzelik is the text. So Malkitzelik actually is getting a portion. Avram forgoes his own portion. 
but he gives the tenth portion to uh, to Malkitzedek. And in giving the portion to Malkitzedek, to Maser, to Malkitzedek, he's making, he's acknowledging what Malkitzedek says, blessed is God who made it possible. Says Abraham, that is true. God made it possible. And you as God's representative get a tithe, which of course we have later in the Torah, the idea of tithing, Maser. So there's the Maser Shemi, there's Maser to the Levi, there's Maser Behema. The tithe is a demonstration that actually without God's help, we could do nothing. And by the way, in the David story, in uh, the David story, when the people say to David, uh, it's one of David's great moments, when people say to David, they shouldn't get their portion. What David says, when you read it carefully is, because when they first come back, they say, this is David's spoils. And David says, no, it's not my spoils, it's God's spoils. We don't, we distribute it the way God would want it distributed, because it's not really mine. Because without God's assistance, we would not have succeeded. And that plays exactly off the story over here. So Abraham, in fact, is saying it's God's work, God's help. I can't speak for the others. The others take their portion. But as far as me, I'm not taking my portion. And of course, if we read the Maser Mikol as acknowledging, he's making an agreement with Malkitzedek. He's affirming what Malkitzedek says. You have done God's work. You have succeeded in fulfilling God's plan and creation. And Avram accepts that, and God helped you do it. And Avram gives him a tithe. He makes a bond. He makes a connection to Malkitzedek. Then we understand why he can't make a connection to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom and Malkitzedek are exact opposites. You can't have an alliance with the king of, with, with, with God's representative and make an, an arrangement with the king of Sodom. So the king of Sodom, I'll just finish this thought, and then I'll stop for questions or comments. The king of Sodom now speaks after Malkitzedek. This is found in verse um, number 21. Give me the souls. He's going to dictate the terms. This guy who created a war that he didn't fight in, lost all his people and his property, is going to dictate to Avram the Tain. His first words are Tain, give. But the last words of the previous verses, Avram gave Malkitzedek. Now the king of Sodom demands Avram give him. You keep the Rechush. And then we have Avram's response. Avram says, no. He repeats the language of Malkitzedek with one exception. He adds, Yud Hei Vavei. I raise my hand means I swear, right? We have even in modern... In, in our country, right here in the States. Please raise your right hand or whatever. Do you solemnly swear? The raising of the hand in the Bible is an oath. I swear, he says. So there's no conversation. I swear, I'm not taking anything from you. I swear to Hashem El Elyon. So he, he repeats what Malkitzedek said, the priest of El Elyon, but my El Elyon is Hashem. He doesn't dismiss Malkitzedek, he actually repeats Malkitzedek. There is a universal cast to the story. He accepts what the priest says fully. But he adds, Hashem, my God is Hashem. So I swear, what do I swear? Strange expression. Chut is a string. Srochnal is a shoelace. It's very strange. You know, it reminds me of what Dorothy Parker said about some actor. 
he ran the gamut from uh, from uh, A to B. You know, strange. Michut now, strange. They seem to be pretty much the same thing, a string of a shoelace. Someone said to me that Yol Binun suggested that a chut is actually a necklace, perhaps, like from head to toe. Maybe. But I think actually better is that it's actually a chut. He's saying, I'm, he's emphasizing, I'm taking nothing from you. Nothing, nothing small, and nothing even smaller, and nothing at all. And then Avram adds, below Tomar, in order that you shouldn't say, Ani has shouti at Avram. That's part of the, it's an element of comedy in the chapter, which is critique. I'm not taking a shoelace from you. If I take a shoelace from you, I know what you're going to say. I made that guy rich. Give him a 69 cent shoelace, he's going to, he made me rich. So that's, there's the critique. But the deeper point is, I'm taking nothing from you. And here is something very interesting in the language of the chapter. Below Tomah has sharti at Avram. Has sharti is a play on the word maser. The shin and the sin are used in the chapter as playing off each other. We also have the shin and the samach, sidim, or the sin and the samach, sidim and sidom. But here we have the shin and the sin, hesharti and maser. And we have it elsewhere in the chapter as well, not just here. Uh, we have it uh, in two other places. But we'll get to two other places we have it, um, where the shin and the sin are played with. So I'm taking nothing from you, he says. I can't, you keep it all. That's as far as I'm concerned. I can't forgo the portion of others, those that went with me. Avram shows concern for the other, unlike all the other kings. No concern for, they're just five and four. With Avram, it's everybody has to be acknowledged. The Narim, the Anashim, the Chanichim, even those that didn't fight. So this is the chapter, just to repeat the main point, what happens in the chapter, Avram has fulfilled God's plan in creation, also, symbolically. And the priest says, you did that, you are blessed. But remember, you couldn't have done it without God's help. God Just in passing, I want to mention, I can't get into this now, but in my view, of course, the language of Migain and Eloyon and Kone, Shemayim Ba'aretz, is all found in the first blessing of our Amidah, Shvon so the rabbinic tradition seized upon the story around which to construct the blessing, which is the most important blessing in all of Jewish liturgy. The first blessing of the Amidah, which is known as Avot, traditionally, is the most important blessing of all our liturgy. And typically, as many have noted, and correctly so, rabbinic liturgy plays off biblical texts. It's a very important point and a very correct and important point. So they chose this particular story. And it's a strange story to choose because for most people, what chapter 14 of Genesis, that one of the central stories of the Bible? They don't think so. Five kings, four kings. But of course it is a central story of the Bible. That's the way the rabbis understood it. And they understood it for a reason, which we'll get to in a few minutes. And no doubt their understanding, I think is very important and important for us to comprehend what they're getting at, was they have the same Chumash we have. And they saw something in this in the Chumash that uh, moved them to base our prayer, our core prayer, on the story of Avram and Malkitzedek. And of course, the idea is the following, that the one who stands in prayer has two essential requests. The first is 
more of a statement, self-understanding. I want to be able to do your work. That's what prayer is about. I want to do God's work. That's we stand in prayer. And we recall Malki Tzedek. That's what Malki Tzedek said. You are blessed. Why are you blessed? Because you do God's work. But you couldn't do it without God's help. So the second part of the Amida is requests. I want to do your work, but I can't do it if I'm sick. I can't do it if I have no insight. I can't do it if, if I'm living in a very dangerous place where I can't function. I can't do it without good health. I can't do it without making a living. All those requests. But the purpose of the request is to ask for God's assistance in what is the critical point of, of, the, of prayer, figuring out why I'm here in this world and what my task is in this world. Everybody presumably has a different answer, but trying to figure out what our responsibilities are and we wanna be able to do them as best we can. So we ask for God's help in that. We reaffirm our commitments and then we want God to help us to do it. And that's the point of the blessing of Bakitzedek and it's a blessing. And remember our prayers are all blessings. They're all framed in terms of blessings. That's the point of the chapter. Okay, I'll stop here. If anybody has comments or questions, we'll take it now and then we'll move on. We'll begin at least chapter 15, which is the covenant, of course. Can I say something? Go ahead. Uh, two things. Uh, number one, uh, concerning uh, the, the combination El Elyon. Yes. Um, I just checked in the concordance. This is the only place where we have this expression. Yeah. just in this chapter. Yes. And I read, you know, a few years ago that the concept Elelion is this, how you say, um, clearly Mesopotamian. Because in Mesopotamia, you have different mamlachot, uh, and each mamlacha had her own El, and the one who is in charge of all this Elim is called Elelion. So what Abraham really says that our, what is equivalent to you, El Elyon, is our Hashem. That could be. In a way. It could certainly be true because we know that in the Bible, certainly, certainly in certain books of the Bible. The Bible does not suggest, for the most part, that there's just one God. Mm -hmm. It doesn't suggest that. It suggests we have one God. As far as we're yeah, concerned, no, there's one this, God. No, this is what I meant, really. But, but as far as other peoples are concerned, yeah. They have their forces, they have their powers. Yeah. In That's fact, I'm thinking Elohim about teaching a course next semester about, about the devil. The place of the devil and the demonic in the Bible and rabbinic texts. I'm considering that, to think about that. That could be extremely interesting. But of course, that's true. So El Elyon does suggest the high God, but it does suggest the possibility of other lesser deities. No, no question about that. So but as far as Avram is concerned, this Hashem. He, he swears by, he takes an oath in, in the name of Hashem. Oath being a, a kind of commitment. Anybody else for comments? I would like to add something. Go ahead. Uh, I did my homework and I counted, uh, in preparation for this class, I counted how many times the word rechush. Yes, is. yes. And it's seven times. And as a student of yours, yes, I must be something in it. Yes, of course. Now let me say something else. Thank you for reminding me. I, I talked about the shin and the sin. Imichut viad sroch na'al. Sroch na'al. Doesn't appear any place else in the Torah, and maybe not in the Bible. Mm -hmm. But sroch na'al, of course, what is sroch? Sin, reish, vav, chaf. Those four letters familiar to you? Rechush. Sin, reish, vav, chaf. How about the word rechush? 
It means the smallest piece of rechush. I'm not taking any rechush, not even a sroch, which of course is the same letters jumbled. The Torah does that in many places. The jumble in your letters, Noach Matzachain. There are many examples of it. That's thank you for that point. I forgot to mention that the shin and the sin. That's the second one. Is Hesharti and Maaser. There's sroch and rechush, and there's another one we'll get to very soon. So the Chumash in this interesting in the art of chapter 14 is very interesting. At its core, there's a kind of comedic level. These two kings falling into the pits, coming out and fighting with a non-fight, who's seeing themselves as much bigger than they are. Uh, but the comedy is actually, in my view, in biblical uh, texts, I disagree with Adele Berlin on this, uh, it is typically critique. It's not just comedy. It's not art for art's sake. I don't think we have that in the Bible. We have a lot of art but it's never just for art's sake. There is a strong critique of kingship and part of it is thinking you're more than you are, which is of course the critique. The nobody king thinks he's Abraham's equal. And the Torah makes it clear on no level is he Abraham's equal. I won't even take the smallest piece of rechush, not even a sroch. You know why? If I take a sroch, you'll say hasharti. I made the guy rich, I gave him a shoelace. That's the kind of person you are. So therefore you keep your rechush and you keep your people and goodbye. And that's the end of chapter four. So Avram has symbolically possessed the land in chapter 14. And now we come to the great chapter 15, which we'll begin today. Rabbi. And that is the covenant. It was called the Brit Ben Habit Tavi. Rabbi. Yes. Pasuk um, Dalid that says, the Pasuk seems to imply that they did go with him, how does Rashi come to the conclusion that they did not? I think Rashi's understanding it, and my understanding as well, that that Oneresh Mamre is additional. The Anashim and the Anashim, those groups, if they sit, the, the Torah has six different descriptions of the groups. Chalichim, Avodim, Anashim, Yuridei Beito, Narim, etc. And then in addition, that's how Rashi understands it, in addition to the ones who went with me, in addition, on they should also get the three. It's interesting, by the way, now that I'm sick about it, it's exactly the same proportion as you have in, in the story of David. Exactly the same proportion, right? <laughs> in the story of David, 400 go and 200 stay behind. So two thirds go and one third stays behind. And over here, there were six descriptions of those that go and three who stay behind. Exactly the same proportion, actually. And we did, but nonetheless, they get their, they get their chaylet. Yeah, I just seen now that there's netnachta after ET, so it's a pause, so that could be also. Yes, nachta supports this, that's right, good point. Right. Just understand, okay, thank you. I, I thought of this myself many years ago, then I saw it in Rashi, in, in, in line of Shmuel, because it, because it, that's Shmuel's story, and you so, you'll see it yourself, look at chapter 30 of Tiklag, you see all the parallels between the two oh. stories, they're very striking, actually, and there's more to say about that, we can't go there right now. Okay, Rabbi thank Silver. you for that comment. Yeah. Rabbi Silver. Yeah. Um, I recently heard uh, my uh, Sakalo speak about the Sroch Na'al and the Michut, and he suggested that the Chut is what goes around the Kafia. So that would be from head to toe. That's what I said. That's basically, I said, Yorbinun said necklace, but it's the same idea. Yorbinun uh, says the same thing, it's from head to toe. Right. I actually don't think it's right. 
I don't oh, think okay. I think the point is the opposite here. I think you would you know, normally it's from head to toe. We have that several places. Mikafra go over here, right? But here I think it's actually a mockery. It's it's a, it's from it's from teeny to teeny weeny to nothing. That's what he's uh -huh. saying. Because if I do this, to even even take a teeny teeny thing or teeny weeny thing, you'll say has sharted because I know what you're thinking. Because anything you give anybody is a big deal. And that's that that's the point here. That's the critique over here. So he wants it's to certainly stress. possible. He it's wants possible to that is critique or necklace that is possible. And my point is Daphne, I think it's not the case. I think Khumish presumes you're gonna think that, but plays off it. Okay. Just uh -huh. as the anyway, comment, thank you for that comment. One comment for Wendy Baker. Yes. Uh, I just I just want to, uh, what Sarah said about uh, Mispal Sheva, it reminds me of what Kasuto wrote. He wrote me, I don't remember the name, the Abraham, the, the second book that Kasuto wrote. Yeah, Abraham from uh, Noah, Noah to Abraham. Yeah, all the numbers. I mean, he. Of course, Kasuto plays with that. Kasuto is one of the main people who, Kasuto was a big influence in my life, actually. And, and, uh, Yes, Kasuto does Four do that, and many have followed in his footsteps. I think sometimes people follow in the footsteps and take it too far, but there's okay. no question that seven is an important, 10 is another number, we'll get to 10, because this chapter is more about 10 than seven. The Maser Miko, it's the 10, it's the 10 people that go, it's the 10 uh, kings, etc. And we'll see how the number 10 is played off in the next chapter. Chapter 15, in short, is based on chapter 14 interwoven with chapter 14. I'm not the first person who discovered that. Judy Kutzner has a book, it's one of her chapters, but the question is understanding the deep significance. That's what that's our task. First is to find this, to find the connections, but the second point is to understand them and to try to interpret them to, and, and to keep trying to get a better interpretation. That's our responsibility, to find the connections and to interpret them. So we'll see the connections. And they're actually some very interesting connections. Then our task is to try to understand what they signify. That's what it means to study. Okay, right, so now let us begin. Chapter 15, we'll begin it today. After these things, So the following thing takes place in a machazeh. A machazeh is a vision. And the word lachazot is to see. So a machazeh is a vision. The following took place in a vision, a dream, a vision. God says, speaks to Avram, Altira Avram, do not be afraid. So God says to Avram, don't be, don't worry. It means he must be afraid of something. I am your shield, Magain Avraham. And of course, Anochim Magenlach immediately in the first verse connects us to what Malkitzedek said. Malkitzedek said, Blessed is God, Hashem Migain Sarecha Biyadecha. So right away, we see a connection between 15 and 14, the Migain of Malkitzedek and the Magain of Abraham. Don't be afraid. The text does not tell us what Abraham is afraid of at this point. He's, God is reassuring Abraham, don't be afraid. Your reward is great. And the reader, wondering what Sachar God is speaking of, one could interpret, and maybe Avram, I think, thinks this. 
that since he's just given away, he captured all this, all these possessions. And we know that Avram in chapter 12 was interested in material wealth. At least as Rashi understood it, the Manitavli Baburech in that episode. And now he's given everything away, even a, even Srochnav, he takes nothing for himself. But don't worry, says God, your reward's going to be great. It sounds like the reward that God is speaking of is some kind of monetary reward. The word sachar often means a monetary reward. Maskorit is well, a wages. Ma maskritecha, Robin asks Yaakov. So Avram responds to God. Oh Lord, what will you give me? Now, before we get to what Avram is saying, let's take note of one very important point in this chapter. And that is Avram's name for God. It's Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, and then Yud, Hei, Vav, Hei. And that is extremely rare in the Bible. Extremely rare in the Bible. I think it only appears in two other places. It appears in only two places in the Bible besides here. We have Hashem Elohim, Yud Hei Vav Elohim. Now we have, for example, in chapter two. In chapter two of Genesis, God is Yud Hei Vav Hei Elohim. Here it's similar, but here it's Aleph Dalet Nun Yud, Hashem. So we take note of that, whatever that signifies, it's significant because it appears here in verse number two, Avram addresses God in this way. And it appears again in um, verse number eight. Bayomar, um, verse number eight, Bayomar, Adonai Elohim, Through what shall I know that I shall possess the land? So when Avram speaks to God in both parts of this chapter, addresses God with this name, we have to understand the significance of that. The names of God are very significant, obviously. Those who uh, hypothesized about the documentary hypothesis built their case to some extent on God's names. And the names, of course, are important, but what they signify, you know, that we have to figure out in each case, what is the meaning of the name? But that he has this name of God here. He addresses God, Aleph, Dawad, Nun, Yud, Adon calls God the Adon, plus the name Hashem, which he mentioned earlier in chapter 14. What will you give me? What can you give me? The, the master of my house, Ben Meshek Beiti, the steward, the one in charge of my household, is Eliezer of Damascus, Damesek Eliezer, once again, the shin and the sin, you notice this, Meshek Beiti, Damesek Eliezer. So it plays off the shit for the third time now, another link between 14 and 15. Eliezer of Damascus, we never heard of Eliezer of Damascus. We know in the previous chapter though, that when Avram fights against the four kings and retrieves everything, people and property, and Rechush, where does Avram go to? He travels in his war against the defeats of the four kings, at Chova, Hashem Damascus, north of Damascus. So the, the Mesek is mentioned and the only time in the Torah in these two places. Eliezer of Damascus, maybe means Eliezer comes from Damascus, or maybe Eliezer means Eliezer who helped me defeat Damascus, who knows? It is interesting, I mentioned this uh, last time we met, that Eliezer in Gematria is 318, and Avram takes 318 men with him. And you gotta wonder about that. I'm not a Gematria guy, but 
it is a always struck me as the number 318 means something. And now Eliezer is actually mentioned specifically here. Eliezer is a very interesting name because the name Eliezer means God has assisted me. Moses' son is Eliezer. There's even perhaps a hint that Eliezer together with God's help. Eliezer was helped me, helped me in doing God's work. But at the end of the day, he's from Damascus. He's, Dam he's Damascus. In other words, he's not my appropriate heir. It reminds us what, what Avram is saying to God effectively is similar to what the king of Sodom said. King of Sodom said to Avram, you can keep the money, just give me the people. And Avram is saying something different, but of course, I'm not saying it's parallel to the king of Sodom, it's quite different. Because the king of Sodom says, pain, give. Avram says nothing, Avram responds. What Avram says to God is, when you said you're my Sachar, Sachar doesn't get monetary. Sachar doesn't interest me. That's not, I don't care about the Sachar. I'm, I'm, I, I notice the word holech. Avram is walking this whole time, right? Mitalech. God will say to Avram. Kum But where am I going? He says, I, it was wonderful that I have, I've accomplished what I've accomplished, but I'm not a young man at this point. How, how is this going to proceed? That's Avram's question. Matite, what would it be? Sachar. Sachar's not going to help me. Thank you very much, but it doesn't interest me. And Eliezer of Damascus may be a wonderful fellow. He can't, he can't move the mission forward. So, Vine, but the next verse is Vine. In the next verse, number three, um, Vine, verse number four, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, verse number three is by Yomer Avram. He spells it out. Hain means like, look here. Look here. Avram repeats it. He makes it clear. The first is a general statement. The Sakhar is not appropriate. But the next verse is, Hain, look here. I have no, Hain Lilo no Tatas. I have no children. I have no descendants. Behine ben Beiti or Rachelti, my steward, ben Beiti. Eliezer is ben Beiti. Nothing doesn't like Eliezer. But he's not appropriate to, to, to pass on the covenant to, or not yet a covenant, but the mission. So the hain and hine, hain is like pushing it away. Hine, the reality is such. And hain, look, you have, you haven't, I have no successor. But even as Avram is speaking, God is, God is speaking again, but hine, and behold. Hine is a term, a word that often appears in dream sequences. So here we have a machazer, it's a dream. And behold, he will not inherit you. But rather one that, that, that comes from you, as your own biological child, will in fact inherit you. So here there's a promise that Avram will have, presumably a son, who will carry forth the mission. It is interesting to note here, and we'll put this aside for now, that when Avram is essentially praying to God, you didn't give me a child. He didn't say, you did give us a child. He says, he's not talking about himself and his wife, Sarah. He talks about himself. That's actually a very important point. He's not thinking of her in terms of the future. She has no children. But he says, I have, 
says, don't worry, you're going to have a child. God doesn't say how this is going to happen, but it's going to be your child. It won't be Eliezer of Damascus, Damascus Eliezer. You will have a child. That's what God is saying. In other words, perhaps we could say what God is saying to Avram, you didn't let me finish talking. I'm not talking about monetary reward. Your sachar is great, but it's not monetary. It has nothing to do with the monetary stuff. It's a different kind of reward, which I will spell out for you, Avram. Now Aaron's going to, God will spell this out. Okay, let's take a couple more verses, then I'll stop and take some comments or questions, and then we'll move uh, forward. Now, let's take one more, two more verses. Each verse requires a lot of thought here. Verse number five is, He took him outside. Vayomer habet took him outside, he says, count the stars. Can you count them? Of course, you can't count them. And God said to him, thus shall your descendants be. Your descendants will be literally as numerous as the stars. Not just one, there'll be many. And the Torah says, and Avram believed, and this is a difficult verse. The translation you have is he, he referring to God, capital H. God reckoned it to Avram's merit. Avram's merit or righteousness. So that reading says that Avram had faith, Hemin. He believed in this promise, that which sounds crazy. Avram believes in it. He has a Muna. And it was reckoned for Avram as tzedakah, as righteousness. That is a way to read this. This is actually a very important verse in, first of all, it's an important verse in the way uh, Judaism proceeds as opposed to Christianity, because Paul had a different reading. Paul reads a lot into this verse about faith versus deeds. But the Ramban actually was bothered by this translation. Um, uh, the Ramban is bothered by this because for the Ramban, faith is a given. It's one of the main foundational thoughts of the Ramban, Nachmanides, is that the, the, the great demands of faith. He believed and that was righteous. Of course he believed. Of course he believed. So the Ramban read it differently. By Avram thought, he believed that God saying this was on account of God's righteousness. That's the way the Ramban reads it. But I think the plain reading is what we have here. It was considered tzedakah. It's very hard to know, actually. But what is interesting over here in this verse, he believed, and it was reckoned as tzedakah. We are once again takes us back to chapter 14, to the main character of 14, apart from Avraham, Malkit Tzedek. So this is tzedakah. In other words, the belief he believes in God's, uh, he's believing in God's tadaka, or the belief itself is tadaka. Essentially, what God is doing here is saying the following that you have done, right? God says, I know what happened in the previous chapter. You have symbolically possessed the land of Canaan. You're doing my work. As Malkit said explicitly, and I'm going to tell you something. 
that someday your descendants are actually going to possess this very land. That's the reward. The reward for symbolically possessing the land and refusing to take reward is there is a reward and the reward will be the covenant about this land, which you, through your, through your heir, through your son, will possess. And in the future generations, there'll be many people <coughs> who enter into this covenant. That's the point of chapter 15. 15 then plays off chapter 14, but it plays off in an even a much deeper way that we will get to hopefully, if not now, we'll get to it next week. Let me stop here and take comments or questions. I'll try to respond. And then we will uh, perhaps next week start with the next verse in chapter 15. Yes, anybody want to speak up? Now's the time. The comment I have is the capital H, he reckoned to his, they should change based on what you're saying, an alternative theory, he should be Avraham, so the small h reckoned to Hashem's credibility. Right, and that, that this translate, every translation is an interpretation. The translation we have before us, which could be right, I'm not saying the other one is right. I'm saying there is a disagreement among the commentaries. Ramban saw the other way around. Ramban saw that Avraham believed that God's yeah, 15, yeah. Uh, promise was an act of, was, was reflecting of God's righteousness. That's the Ramban. The other way is that Avram's faith itself is accounted as tzedakah. I think they're both possible. I, I'm not sure which of those two was the better interpretation, but the translation we have here is reflective not of the Ramban. I mentioned the Ramban just to point out this very important point in the Ramban, an important point about the Ramban in general, that for him, faith is one of the absolute central motifs of all his writing and the demands of faith. I'll give you another example of the Ramban's belief in faith. The, the story of Divrei Hayamim talks about King Asa, ASA. Good name for crossword puzzles, by the way, ASA. And um, so uh, says he was a good, good king, but the end of his life was problematic and he got sick and, he, and he, he went to the doctors, which is a critique. So the Ramban talks about this. Why do they critique going to doctors? The Ramban himself was a doctor of sorts. Like, I don't know how much time he had to do any medical work, but the Rambam, the Ramban, they're all doctors, supposedly. Point is, well, the Rambam actually was a doctor, for sure. In any event, so the Rambam, what do you mean? What's wrong with going to a doctor? The Rambam always tries to resolve the rabbinic tradition with the biblical text. Says the Rambam, no, Torah says, the rapo uh, yirape. You get sick, you rapo yirape, you go to a doctor. Says the Rambam, depends who you are. If you're the normal person, you go to a doctor. But if you truly have the deepest faith, then, then you don't go to doctors. You don't need the doctor. It's all, it's all reciprocal. Those who have the true, the true faith, Hanin and Mendoza doesn't have to go to doctors because it, on a level of faith that God responds providentially to those people without doctors. But for the average person, even a good person, person has to go to doctors. So the point that, that's where the Ramban tries to resolve it, but my point is not whether it's right or wrong. My point is that for the Ramban, faith is something paramount. So Vermin Bashem, of course, Avram believes, says the Ramban. Why even praise him for that? That's a given. So it can't mean that. It can't be that's tzedakah for him to believe, because of course, that's, that's normal. It means quite the opposite. That Avram believed that in God saying this to Avram was an act of righteousness on God's part. Maybe that he doesn't really deserve it or whatever it is. So Avram saw God as a righteous God for making the promise. But you're right, the translation reflects, can, translations, they pick a particular interpretation, 
and the translation is in fact an interpretation. Doesn't mean it's right, but that's what we have on the page. Anybody and else? And just in terms of the, uh, the, uh, the name of God that he uses, I don't know if you're going oh, to get yes. this time, but uh, I mean, just occurred to me that maybe the word Adonai, it's, it's a very much of a, to me at least, like a feudal type arrangement. Uh, so he's really, if this is the guy who's given the rewards, so that's why he uses the term. I don't know. Well, Adon, actually. Um, Adoni. Adoni. Adon is a master, an owner, a lord. The fact of the matter is, the, 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 the Talmud says, the first person to call God Adon is Abraham. Let's not forget Coming back to the first, to the first, to our blessings, to our prayers, which are blessings, basically, the Amida, Eloyon, Koneyakol, again, Abraham, that in our prayers, actually, even though it's written Yud Hey Vav Hey, we don't pronounce it that way. We pronounce it, we say Adonai, basically, Adon. In fact, I think it's the Vilna Gaon who said that's the custom to say Adon Olam before you daven. If you look at your Sidurim, you'll see Adon Olam is printed mm -hmm. in the beginning, because the God to whom we pray is actually Adon. That's, that, that's the name of God we use. So it's actually very interesting that it's written yud heh vav but it's pronounced Adon, which is our prayers. Once again, coming back to the prayers, I will pick up again on the, that name. It comes up again in verse eight. Next week, I, we have two more classes here. For these, we'll continue in the spring, but we have two more classes for this um, bunch of sessions. And I will talk about the... Um, suggest something about the significance of that particular name. The names are significant. For example, in the second and third chapters of this book, Breshit, in the Gan Eden episode, for the most part, it's Hashem Elohim, yud heh vav -Hey and Elohim. And that is, I believe, appears 20 times. When the snake speaks, the snake says only Elohim. But, that's the, but the names are very important, and we'll come back to these names in the Abraham story later on including the Akeda. So the names are significant, but this name, Adon, and then Yudhei Vavhei, appears only two other places in the Torah, and very interesting places, one in particular, and it appears in a chapter in the Book of Shmuel, very important chapter in the Book of Shmuel, which plays off the story here. If we have time, I will explain that. That's very interesting. Anyway, okay, anybody else will have to? Yes, uh, yes please. Tiller, it's interesting that uh, when Avram, uh, Avram talks about his uh, lack of future, that what are you going to give me? He uses the word holech. And Esau, when he uh, abuses the uh, uh, the Bechor, that what, yes. what do I need this for? Ani holech oh, yes. Right. So there is a uh, connotation right. there of uh, what am I doing this for? That Yes, it's, maybe that's kind of fruitless, basically. In other words, that's what Avram is saying in effect. He's saying that his, his mission is, of course, lech lecha. His mission is to, he's on a journey. And what Avram is saying is, the journey that I'm on, I'm not seeing a good end to my journey because I may do very nicely for myself, but everything I'm trying to build up in this world, I don't see any future for it. Because Eliezer of Damascus may be a wonderful person. He's Ben, ben Meshik Beiti. He's Ben Beiti, he calls him Ben Bayat. Nonetheless, he's a Ben Bayat. I have many people, I have Khalichim, I have all kinds of people. But in terms of the mission, that's a different story. Everybody has a different task. There's nobody to carry on the mission. And even as he's speaking, God says, Don't, you misunderstand me. Am I talking about a monetary reward? The reward is different. The reward is you will have an heir. And the reward is this very land that you symbolically possessed will someday be yours. But of course, it comes at a 
tremendous price. And that we'll see next week. So next week we'll pick up with this theme of chapter 15 and 14. Well, I'll stop at this point. If you have any other questions, you can email me. It's digsilberatrisha.org. Um, looking forward to meeting again. Uh, we have, let's see, this coming Tuesday night is I'm teaching my last class. I added two classes. And then we have on the 15th of December, Professor Jonathan Sarna will be speaking about, he's a historian, well known historian of American history, praying for the president in halacha and history. It's interesting. Uh, it appeared when it first came out, it didn't say Jonathan Sarna, it said praying for the president, the welfare of the president. Someone said, are you really praying for the welfare of this president? So we, you know, that wasn't the intention of that. It's about in general, the, you know, the prayers we have for the government, including the president, etc. That's what Professor Sarna will speak about. I think it's an interesting topic. Then we will have, of course, our winter two weeks of study. Uh, I believe it's uh, the last week in December, the first week in January. The topic will be food and um, food scarcity. Uh, we'll be studying the sixth chapter of, 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 of Brachot. I'm actually one of the teachers. And there's a special day on January 3, which will be a, a Yomi Yun about food, food ethics, scarcity. Looking forward to that as well. Uh, Okay, so good to be with you again, and hopefully uh, next this, next Sunday, same time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Thank you. Thank you. Very Thank nice. You. Very, very nice. Thank you. Rabbi. Thank you. Have a Thank great you. weekend. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you.